Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, Quillette's Canadian editor. If you're a libertarian or just a student of modern economics, Tyler Cowen is a name you will know. His books include The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream, and his brand new St. Martin's Press publication, Big Business, A Love Letter to an American Antihero. Cowan is a professor at George Mason University, where he holds the Holbert C. Harris Chair in the Economics Department, and a co-blogger at Marginal Revolution, together with Canadian-American economist Alex Tabarrok. Cowan is also the chairman and faculty director of the Mercatus Center of George Mason University, located in Arlington, Virginia. That's where I visited Cowan to interview him for the Quillette podcast. Here are excerpts from our conversation. You were New Jersey State chess champion at the age of 15. How did that happen? I started playing chess seriously in 1972. I had my appendix out. I was in the hospital. I started watching the Bobby Fischer match against Boris Bosky. And then I just played more, and I liked it. And I always tried to play the best players, you know, the adults, not the other kids. And it went pretty well. Did people resent the fact that you were beating people, I'm guessing, maybe three, four, five times your age? I don't think so. Chess is a pretty fair game, right? It's the true meritocracy, for better or worse. And if you play better moves, usually you're going to win. And a lot of the best players are fairly young. So uh, I was especially young. But on average, people are used to younger beating older. Do you still play? No, but I watch it online all the time. I love Magnus Carlsen. I'm a big fan. Okay, let's talk about some of your work. Marginal Revolution now has a university attached to it. Can you tell me about the future of education and how your work figures into that? Our university is online. It's mruniversity.com, and it's a series of several hundred economics videos that cover the core concepts of economics and teach you micro, macro, development, international trade. And these are free. Uh, They don't have any ads attached to them. There's no catch. And I think uh, people who are in a position to do something and give away online information for free should do it. So we get over 6 million views a year. We have over 100,000 YouTube subscribers. And I've been delighted with how this has gone. We had a student from Fordham University, and he wrote a piece for Quillette saying that even when he was enrolled in a traditional bricks-and-mortar university, he was getting most of his information from instructional videos online as a means to understand his course material. Do you see what you're doing as perhaps the future of mainstream education a couple of decades from now? Well, it may be the present. We get emails telling us that every day, like, oh, I don't understand my book. I don't understand my instructor. I love your videos. A lot of the videos are five to seven minutes in length. You can pause them when you want. They have subtitles in multiple languages. For many people, it's a better way to learn, right? And it's free. The textbook isn't free. It can cost two, three hundred dollars. So we think uh, we're out competing the market here. I think it will happen very rapidly. For so many employers, 
credentials are a sort of heuristic they use to decide who's smart and who isn't. How does this new, more informal system where people self-educate at places like MRU, how does that figure into the way people are going to make hiring decisions? I don't think degrees will go away because employers are still asking for them. In some ways, they're more important than ever. But what's behind the degree? Schools are financially pressed. Tuition has been rising. The actual learning contribution of schools is sometimes questionable. So to think that, say, a quarter of what goes on inside the modern university ends up being done online, I think that's already happening. A lot of your most fascinating work takes place at the interface between market economies and the regulatory state. You recently had a fascinating piece about public urination in San Francisco and how it can be traced in in some ways to, to nimbyism, to the way projects, infrastructure, new construction, income properties in particular get blocked within San Francisco. Could you give a capsule summary of that argument? I've been to San Francisco many times, and it's striking to me, as to many other people, that in one of the world's richest and smartest cities, people urinate in the street all day long. They take drugs, they accost you. How can this be? So I thought about it. I think part of the problem is what's called NIMBY, that it's very hard to build new things. That's not in my backyard. That's right. And so rents and home prices are very high. And that means that if there's a gain in the city, a lot of the value is captured by the landlords and not by the voters. If something gets worse, well, correspondingly, your rent or your home price goes down. So most people who live in the city, they don't benefit very much from the city improving, and they don't lose very much if public services get worse. So that's a bad recipe for urban quality. You see a bit of the same in Manhattan. The subway's terrible compared to most other well-off cities. Well, it's not just the subways that are terrible in New York. Uh, you drive from LaGuardia Airport to Midtown, it's uh, it's like you're in a developing country. Sure, garbage collection. It takes forever to, to create any sort of new subway line or tunnel uh, or long-term infrastructure. But a lot of people, editorial writers, for instance, uh, would just say, oh, that the taxes are too are too low. We need more money for infrastructure. Is that part of the problem too? Well, taxes in both New York City and San Francisco are very, very high. They're higher than in most Western European countries if you add up all the different layers of tax. If you're, say, you know, a law partner uh, in Manhattan and you're just getting raw income rather than capital gains, uh, you put together state and local and federal taxes and sales tax, my goodness, I, you'd do better living, say, in Sweden. I think I was paying 52% when I lived in New York. And a lot of people are paying much more than that. You can be paying 60%. So I don't think it's the taxes. I think you have bad incentives. When so much of the gains are captured only by a few people, uh, the citizens don't demand true accountability. I don't think you present yourself as, as an urban renewal specialist, but what cities are doing it right? I'm a big fan of Singapore. Uh, I think they use economics more than any other country on earth. You could call them a city. You could call them a nation. They're both, of course. They have over 5 million people. It's about the size of Fairfax County, but they use congestion pricing. Uh, They do have real estate problems. They're trying to manage those by building more. They're creating artificial land. They're hoping to strike up new deals with southern Malaysia. And it is a technocracy. Uh, In general, I'm often suspicious of technocracy, but theirs is an incredibly well-run example of that. I've been to Taipei recently in Taiwan, and, and I also was struck by how quickly and rationally and efficiently a lot of their problems are dealt with. Uh, But partly that's because, as with Singapore, there's a high population density 
and there isn't a lot of squabbling between different levels of government. Is there a tension between this need for efficiency and rationalization in policymaking for densely populated spaces with high infrastructure needs and the need to permit market forces and human liberty to, to be set at play? I don't think you can have complete liberty in any kind of large city. Even our own founding fathers recognized this. They didn't understand that very large cities were going to be inevitable. But I think a big advantage both Taiwan and Singapore have is they do not take for granted their future as independent nation states. They know they can't screw it up too much. And I wouldn't want to have to live under that risk. But I feel in the United States we've forgotten about that side of life, uh, that there is such a thing as conquest and you need to get your act together or tomorrow is not guaranteed. And those two countries understand that very well and often to their benefit. Same with Israel. Is the libertarian creed, as it's understood in the United States, an artifact of low population density? The original libertarian creed was, I think the libertarian creed needs to evolve quite a bit uh, and incorporate some idea of a notion of the necessity of social welfare, uh, figure out foreign policy better, and also realize that in a world where most people will be living in large cities, you have problems that can only be solved by some kind of government involvement. You wrote, I think it was a column, maybe it was a decade ago, where you talked explicitly about how there had to be a reconciliation between the libertarian ethos and the need for, in some sectors at least, bigger government. Are you a controversial figure within libertarian discussion groups and, and, and seminars, to which I assume you're, you're invited all the time. Sure. I used to be a much more controversial figure than I am now. When I wrote that piece for Cato, I think that was 2007, a lot of people were outraged. But I think a lot of people have come around to my way of seeing it, that we really do want more liberty. We're never going to have complete liberty. We need to blend the best of conservative, libertarian, and, and liberal ideas and come up with recipes that actually work and people will choose and that the purest uh, vision, it's just not getting very far, right? We live in an age of Trump, and the left progressives, to me, they're, they're somewhat going crazy, and we need something a bit more centrist that people are going to buy into and implement and actually make our lives better. Tell me a little bit about the intellectual landscape here in Washington, D.C., which I know has transformed in the last couple of decades. I think there used to be more of a bright line between policymaking think tanks and, and the partisan environment, that started to break down, certainly uh, most famously at, uh, at the Heritage Foundation and perhaps also at uh, American Enterprise Institute. Uh, is this a challenge that you face here at the Mercatus Center? No, we're in a university. The single biggest thing we do is train students and support faculty. And we have a focus that is pointed toward the rest of the nation and not mainly toward Washington, though, of course, we're aware of Washington. Uh, but I'm a big fan of this area intellectually. I think what people rarely point out, it's the only major city in North America where there's more or less an even balance between right-wing and left-wing ideas. And that's phenomenal. You don't find it in New York, San Francisco, L.A., but in Washington, I don't mean the residents, but the people who write. You have plenty of conservatives, libertarians, eclectic people in the mix, and it's a truly balanced discussion. So I think here it's getting better, not worse. At top universities across the United States, progressives tend to outnumber conservatives. By massive margins. At George Mason University in general, are things different? Uh, I'm in the economics department, and I also teach in the law school. And both of those are highly eclectic departments 
where you have people, many different views, right wing, left wing, different kinds of views which are not left wing. I think we're more diverse than virtually any other departments out there. But the rest of George Mason University is not that different from other large state schools elsewhere. That is, you have a preponderance of Democrats. I think because of where we're located, we're still more centrist than most other schools. And most of our students are immigrants or children of immigrants. So we have very few problems with political correctness. We have a very high free speech rating. It's a very positive campus climate that I think should be viewed as a model for many other places. We hear a lot about the University of Chicago as being a model in that respect, but it sounds like George Mason is up there in terms of its protections for free inquiry. Uh, yes, I just visited Chicago and I spoke there. I'm a big admirer of that place. But, you know, they are in some ways a school mostly of spoiled rich white kids. They make a good go of it. And we are not a school of spoiled rich white kids. We're truly diverse. We solve the diversity problem by actually being diverse. It's amazing. It works. Uh, so at University of Chicago, it's more a matter of, of doctrine in order to support free speech, whereas perhaps here it happens more organically because of who the students are. But they do some other very good things. So they expect their undergraduates to work very hard, which I think weeds out complainers. And uh, they are much more meritocratic than most places. And they attract a nerdier student. And they're just stricter and more rigorous. And they have incredible faculty. And uh, the administration has supported Chicago being a free speech and diverse university, and uh, it's all to be admired. There are some ideas that become orthodox very quickly. Uh, one of them is the idea that we need to reform the bail system, which in the last few years, it's sort of just become part of the received wisdom. Your co-blogger on Marginal Revolution uh, surprised an audience, I think it was at Brookings, by saying that, well, hold on a second, bail might be useful in, in certain respects, or we might be misrepresenting the problem. Where do you stand on that issue? First, we need to be very careful of groupthink in all situations, most of all when you know speaking amongst ourselves. Uh, I'm not an expert on bail. Uh, I have a lot of trust in Alex's judgment. And the notion that by reforming bail, you would lead to people in captivity being treated badly in other ways or having other liberties denied, uh, I think we need to take very seriously. So I haven't studied the data, but I would be very cautious about reforming the bail system, and I found Alex's arguments persuasive. Socialism doesn't seem to be quite as dirty a word as it once was. Do you see any signs that there really will be a genuine surge in interest in a socialistic economic model in the United States? It depends what you mean by socialism. If by socialism you mean extreme discontent with capitalism, more redistribution, and much more government regulation, we see that already. If you mean widespread nationalization of industries, I really only expect we'll see a push for that in the healthcare sector. Now, that's like a seventh of GDP. That's a lot. But I don't think people want, you know, CVS to be taken over, say, by the government. Well, let's talk about healthcare specifically because the administrative costs of the U.S. healthcare system are, are extraordinary, something like 20 or 30 percent, uh, as compared to something like 10 percent in my own country, Canada, where we have a universal system. Is it tempting even for conservative economists and policymakers to say we need some way to have a more efficient system and maybe a single payer system is the answer? Well, a lot of the American system now is single-payer through Medicare and Medicaid. Or veterans' uh, affairs. Yes, and those are not mainly well-run programs, and they also have very high costs. So I think it's something about America. Our infrastructure costs are also much higher 
than most of the rest uh, of the developed world. So there's something about multiple layers of federalism, the way we apply them, our demand that the consumer experience always has to be a very positive one, doesn't even necessarily get you to that end point. And we're unwilling uh, to say no to ourselves and really take costs on ourselves in an open, explicit fashion to just say, well, if we do X, that should translate into higher taxes. Let's decide if it's worth it. But we try to bury things in the form of mandates or borrowing and higher deficits. And if you do all of those things, you're going to have much higher costs. We're in denial as a society in America. Canada is more honest with itself, I would say. Now, I don't want the Canadian healthcare system in this country, but I think for Canada, it works as well as it does in part because Americans spend so much and actually support innovation to a higher degree. When you go to Europe, are there economic models you see there that you think America could really learn from? I don't think we can copy any country, but you see a number of instances in Europe, say the Nordic countries, they've done a lot more privatization than we have in some regards, like say postal systems. Uh, they're quite transparent about costs and benefits. We could use more of that. Uh, I don't think we can copy their basic model. Switzerland is a country that has a much smaller government than the Nordics and is quite wealthy. It's wealthier than Sweden, say, or Denmark. Uh, I don't think we can copy that either. It's striking to me that if you compare the United States to other very populous countries, we are by far the best run one. And that's maybe a more interesting fact. There was a famous Mother Jones article that came out a couple of years ago by somebody who uh, who wrote an article after working as a prison guard at a privately run prison and had many horror stories to tell. The cocktail napkin version of the story is that states are simply trying to reduce costs and they're offloading it to private companies. But as the argument was made on, on marginal revolution, the narrative actually has a lot to do with lawsuits against the government arising from prisons. Uh, this is new research. It just won the Eleanor Ostrom Award from the Public Choice Society. Uh, Professor Gunderson uh, wrote this paper. I don't think it's been validated yet. I suspect it's likely true. But the notion that a lot of the relevant costs governments are trying to avoid are costs from lawsuits and that that's why they privatize prisons. She has some pretty good data suggesting uh, that may be the correct hypothesis. For decades, we've been hearing some similar argument made in regard to why healthcare costs are so high. How big a problem is the litigiousness of American society more generally? Uh, I once was a lawyer in the United States, and uh, it, it really is a more litigious society than you see in Canada or Europe. It's so easy to say the United States has too much litigation, and I suppose if you pressed me, I probably would agree. But keep in mind, as you well know, lawyers are engineers for incentives. And the most complex society needs, in a sense, more engineering for its incentives. And the U.S. is still the most innovative nation on earth and uh, does quite well in terms of per capita income. And uh, I'm not convinced there's another way to have a nation so large and so federalistic that does not involve a lot of reliance on litigation. So I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic on the standard take. Let's talk about the economics of universities uh, for a moment because there has been a trend toward universities employing more contract professors to teach a course or two, uh, giving them 5000 or $10,000 to teach the course, not giving them tenure track or... It's rarely $10,000. Often the rate's 3500 but... It's not a lot of money. And you do see this sort of increasingly two-tier system where you've got 
established professors with tenure and benefits and, and the parking spot and, and everybody else who can't make plans in life because they don't know where they're going to be in a year or two. Uh, do you see this as a problem? Absolutely. So there's a lot of talent being locked out of true academic jobs. A lot of people who are entrenched who maybe no longer deserve to be. And students often get the lesser quality teachers rather than the higher quality teachers. I don't think it's about to fall apart right away. Uh, I think it's also a bad system for women because the tenure clock maps onto normal pregnancy years in a way very bad for female careers. So more and more I've started to think we really need fundamental reforms to tenure. I don't think we should do it all at once for the whole system, but if you live in a big diverse federalistic country, well, that's what experiments are for, right? And it's sad to me that no state has really taken the lead and started trying major experiments. I want to see that happen. Although the tenure system, as I understand it, kind of evolved by accident during the Cold War. Often people describe it as something that's been around for centuries, but uh, it's fairly recent. Do the states even have jurisdiction to change the tenure system if they wanted to? Absolutely. So what, 78% of students in American higher ed go to state schools. And those are controlled by state governments, albeit indirectly. And it is possible to do experiments or to have private schools decide to do more experiments. So I think the tenure system worked great in the 60s and 70s when, say, enrollments were just rising, rising, rising. Uh, There's now a scarcity of students. uh, And that will get worse unless we have more liberal immigration policy, which I don't see on the horizon. And then I think the tenure system will be more distortive. And we have many more women who want to be in academia than was the case several decades ago, and that's another problem. What is your take on, call it, the correct level of immigration for a society like the United States? I think the correct level is what you can persuade your citizens to support. And on that front, I'm pessimistic. But I personally would very gladly double the numbers we're taking in now, possibly triple. I think this would be good for the country. Growing population is good for the macro economy. We'd have a lot more innovation, more skills coming in. It would solve a lot of our budgetary problems if we did immigration the right way. And the United States is historically very good at assimilating immigrants. But I feel open borders, I mean, literally would end civilization as we know it if we actually stuck with them. Uh, I think it's a, a very bad idea, dangerous idea. Former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, in his most recent book, wrote that open borders, regardless of who's coming across those borders, always create political discontent. Is that your view? Well, I wouldn't say always. It worked great in the 19th century in the United States, and for that matter, Canada. But there weren't that many people in the world with the means and will to get here. But it's how this nation grew and became great, and how Canada was peopled. And I'm very glad we had open borders when we did. And again, I'm pro-immigration. I want to have many more immigrants. But if you didn't have restrictions, you would end up with many hundreds of millions of people coming under conditions where they would, you know, live and sleep on the sidewalk and and work in very low quality jobs and civic order as we know it, I believe would disappear. I want to go back to the question of income inequality and, and stratification. We talked about it in the narrow context of the university, uh, but among knowledge workers more generally. You now have companies like Twitter or Kickstarter where a a relatively small number of people are able to control a company that has billions and billions of dollars in terms of its footprint and in terms of its reach. Are you concerned about not just income inequality, but the way relatively small numbers of knowledge workers are able to control huge swaths of the economy 
while the rest of us drones have to go get boxes in gigantic Amazon warehouses and worry that even those jobs are going to get outsourced to robots? Well, I wouldn't say those shareholders control those parts of the economy. It's customers and users who are mostly controlling what happens. But if you look at the top tech companies, and I'm including the ones controlled by very small numbers of people, they've been phenomenal innovators. They've also innovated in areas beyond their initial contribution. Uh, they think very long term. Uh, arguably, we need more of this. You know, for decades, people were saying, oh, the public company, so many shareholders, you know, everything's just about the quarterly earnings report. This is terrible. Now you get a system where there's true long-term thinking and innovation, and everyone's saying, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. So they can't have it both ways. I think you want some parts of your economy owned in concentrated fashion, and we have that in some parts of the tech sector. I think it's worked very, very well for us. Ten years ago, if we were talking about censorship or ideological control, we would be talking about the actions of governments. Now, when we have those kinds of discussions, we're more typically talking about the actions of Facebook or Twitter or Google. Are there now economic incentives for large companies to restrict the range of ideological content that appears on their networks? Uh, there are some incentives. So several years ago, the large companies themselves, they didn't want that responsibility at all. They understood it would cost a lot of money. Whatever decisions they made would make no one happy. Uh, but over time, pressure from often their own employees or users have led to an increasing encroachment of discretionary decisions as to what gets posted. Uh, my view is in this area, there's no real satisfactory solution. I don't call it censorship. I run a blog. I don't let just anyone post on my blog. I wouldn't let Nazis post on my blog. That's fine. And if my blog becomes very, very, very popular and is a big part of people's you know, mind space, I don't feel I should have to change that policy. Uh, the worries about big tech company censorship uh, seem overblown to me. I do think there are some decisions that were made that were wrong and mistakes. But when you have just hundreds and hundreds of millions of cases and you rely on algorithms for your first cut, there are going to be mistakes. Overall now, there are more practical ways to express yourself than there ever have been in the history of the human race by orders of magnitude. And I think that's the more important development. Here in the Washington ecosystem, a lot of the intellectual activity is dominated by government, obviously, by lobbyists, by activists, and by academia. These also happen to be the sectors of society that probably have been touched the least by technological and economic factors in the last 50 or 100 years, simply because they're insulated structurally. Does that present challenges to someone like you in terms of analyzing the modern economy? Do you actually have to make efforts to go out and witness things on your own, as you did informally, I guess, when you were in San Francisco? Oh, absolutely. So I spend at least a third of my time on the road. I go to the Bay Area maybe four or five times a year. I'm in New York about once a month. I visited almost 100 countries. I go to China every year, and I've been to most of the different parts of China. So you need to get out there and see what's happening. And if you stick around in your own backyard, that's the very worst recipe for being closed-minded or provincial. And so many academics do that. I'm a big, big proponent of the value of travel. Thank you so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? 
Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.